0: Welcome to episode 119 of the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Lee, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. In this episode, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson in the most recent Engage and Equip Live on shepherding people through the second danger window. Thanks for listening.
1: Find a part of either the handout or another paper, piece of paper that you have. So we're gonna do something right now that everybody loves to do. We're gonna take a quiz. You're gonna write down one thing you learned and internalized and use from every engagement equip session we've had for the last year. Okay, so that's, that's all. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you this session, and you're gonna write down something that you learned, remembered, and use from that session. Okay, ready? The first is that ministry is love from John 21. Remember Jesus, feed my sheep. Ministry is caring about what Jesus cares about. It's about love. Okay, so write down right now something you learned, remembered, mastered, and used from that talk. All right. There's a lot of people laughing. I'm not really sure what's happening. Okay, the second one is ministry is a craft so it's, like, it's more like building a table than doing brain surgery. You know, you can – I've carved and whittled my own wooden spoons before, and then other people can make houses, build houses. Um, and it's so like a craft is something almost anybody can do some. You can learn pretty quick, but then you can master throughout your life. So mystery is a craft. You learn how to do it. I said a bunch of stuff about that in the talk. So what's one of the things that you learned and remembered and mastered and use from that? Ene. Event. Do we have, like, a little thing of, like, counting down when I'm supposed to be done? Do we not have that this time? When am I supposed to be done, Ashlyn? Do you know? 730? Okay. We'll be—hopefully before that. Okay. All right. The second, the third one is ministry is a mission. We base it on the Great Commission and a number of other ones that Jesus said, go into the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit— Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. We talked about the mission or commission God has given us. Remember that talk. What's something that you learned? Remember, mastered, and use from that. Engage in equip event. Sean, are you even playing? You look like you're just on your phone, like flicking through Instagram. Oh, that's cheating. <laughs> remember, it was learned. Remember, mastered, and use. That's good. No, that's really— Wow, I'm actually kind of surprised. Okay. <laughs> so the next one is practicing or multi- multiculturalism. Then the church is a place for all people. The gospel is a message for all people. Salvation is a salvation for all people. Heaven is going to be a place for people of all nations, tribes, and tongues. Our mission is a mission to all people. How are we doing? Okay. You got that one. Great. All right. This is where I'd be. D- I would be done with this bit if here we go. Okay. All right. So how we doing? You got stuff written down. Okay. Who has at least one answer so far? Okay. Great. Femi, what's one what are your answers? Uh huh. Okay. Did you learn that from that engaged and Equip session or did you learn that from other experiences? Okay. Okay. Oh, great. Great. All right, cool. Anybody else have an answer for any of the questions at all? Yeah, Becca. Sweet, and you've done that in the last year. Great. Okay, good. Yeah. Kyle, Kyler. Cool. So used used practicing. So, all right. Does is practicing affirmation the one that everybody has an answer for? Like, if you, okay. So yeah, Ashlyn. Great, great. Praying for people. Praise Jesus. Did you say that, Mike? In that session. No, did Mike say, did you say that in the session? Yes, great, okay. (laughs) Okay, so part of the point of this, obviously, is that, um, you know, we can get together every month and I can talk for 40 minutes about things, and um, it's just really hard to remember and master. And so one of the questions you always have to make when you're trying to do something is getting technology that works for you when you push its buttons. Oh. Set it to stun. Okay, great. I'm sorry. It seems like it's worked in the past. All right, so p- part of the issue is when it comes to ministry, because what we're actually aiming for in engaging and Equip is actually equipping, pe- equipping people to minister to other people, the only thing that counts is what you can do. Does that make sense? Because like what we're trying to do is actually minister and love other people and serve them, and so the only thing that really matters is what we can do because this is operational. So one of the things I want to try to do in the next year of this, because we had this discussion with the staff. After a year of doing Engage and Equip, we were going to talk about whether it was worth doing, right? And in a church of about 650 adults each Sunday, to have more than 80 people, to have more than 10% of the adults that regularly go to your church come to something for training is actually a huge success. It's a wonderful thing. And we're really encouraged by the fact um, that you're here because— um, one of the things that we're trying to do more and more on staff is to, to organize things better on the staff team and then push them out to volunteers so that we completely reject the worldly idea that you have to be an expert to do something worthwhile, right? In our culture, more and more, the, the message is everybody wants to specialize their field. to limit who can go into it and say, I am better and better at this. I can do this. You shouldn't be doing it. There's more and more specialized knowledge you need to do any work in my field. And in ministry, that is not true most people need more than anything else is somebody to listen to them, somebody to care about them, somebody to affirm them. The most fundamental needs that actually raise people up spiritually and morally are often the most basic human needs that people are deprived of, even in a culture of technological plenty and specialization plenty. And one of the things we need to do as a church is to recognize that in um, in biological technologies, that might be true, and in certain scholastic fields, that might be true. In ministry, it is not true. And we have to over and over reject that idea and realize that every person— it says in Romans 15, right? That for all the Bible says about sin, and it says a lot about sin in Romans. In Romans 15, it says, you, are, you all have enough in yourselves and have been fully taught by the Spirit to love and do what you need to do. Like that you're completely able to do it. And he said that to people with a whole lot less biblical knowledge than you, with a whole lot less Bible than you, Right? They have the Old Testament and Romans. <laughs> That's it, man. He's like, "You got everything you need, right? So anyway, the point is is that what we want to do is what I want to do in this next year, because we're like, this is absolutely worthwhile. So what are we going to do? What I'd like to do is kind of actually split the talks into two parts. One is, I want to go back and review something, because only what we take out of here, only what we can do matters, right? And then I want to introduce something new, okay? So tonight what I want to do is I want to go through the first three talks that were all related to ministry. Ashlyn, if you can go to that next one. So if you remember, one of the last talks that I did was about ministering to people in relationship to temperament in the triumvirate of doctrine, devotion, and action, right? Some people just temperamentally are focused on what are the truths we need to know to work things out. Some people are devotional. What are the passions we need to have to feel and be motivated in the direction we need to go. And action is, what do we need to do? What's the thing we need to do? Does that make sense? And so, um, to minister to people, trying to figure out where they're at, and trying to kind of touch them where they're best touched is usually most helpful. Now, if you think about that, and you think about the first three talks of Engage and Equip, I broke down what we're doing as a church in those three ways. In doctrine, devotion, and action. So you can see if devotion is the main one, John 21, ministry is a love. It's about loving what Jesus loves, loving who Jesus loves, and behaving like we love who Jesus loves is the center of ministry. Jesus said to Peter, go feed my lambs, guard and protect my sheep, and care for my lambs. Like That's what he wanted his disciples to do and his leaders to do and his shepherds to do at the point of his departure. He calls them lambs because the presumed position for us is shepherd. We're supposed to care for, feed, and protect those that are his, right? And that's all about how how you feel, your passion, what you love, what he thinks is important, what you should think is important. It's about what's in here. It's in your your creamy center, right? And so the second one is doctrine, which is what do you need to know? Right? And you can, you can see that in terms of ministry being a craft. How do you do it right? What are the doctrines you need to know? What's the biblical knowledge you need to have? What's the dynamic of how people learn? What are the psychological truths that are important? What are the things that if you understand them, you can figure out what to do in every situation because you have the knowledge right? Does that make sense? And then the third is action, which is literally the commission. What's a commission? Somebody who tells you that it's your job to do something. Right? There's a lot of ways in which Christians— which is both the doing of making disciples and the doing of obeying and teaching people to obey everything, which is what we're supposed to be doing. So in the first three ways that we looked at in visioning for the church, it breaks down into these three areas of people's temperaments. And no matter which one is your primary temperament, in order for you to be fully mature in Christ, you've got to grapple with all three of them, especially in relationship to who and what the local church is what you are as a Christian in it, and how you are relating under Jesus as the chief shepherd, as somebody he's using to minister to and shepherd and love other people. Does that make sense? So, the real quiz, and I'm not going to give you a bunch of time to do this because here's my hope. My hope is that you're going to take this home and do this in your devotional times. That you're going to have personal times with God where you're going to take this out in the next week and you're going to work through each one of these. Maybe on three different days. Where you'll take it out and you'll be like, okay, devotion. Ministry is a love. You have to care about what Jesus loves. You read the passage. Ministry takes sacrifice. We sacrifice time, reputation, relational risk, discipline, preparation, loss of privacy, financial generosity, change of lifestyle, right? And then to answer these questions honestly for yourself. How tuned and passionate is your heart these days in loving what Jesus loves and wanting to serve him? Like, honestly, what is the state of your heart? Look, it says in Romans 12, verse 11, I think, keep up your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Right before this, it says, never be lacking in zeal. You'd be like, I just don't feel up right now. Well, in Romans 12, 11, the Apostle Paul doesn't put the ball in the Holy Spirit's court to make you feel spiritually energized. The Apostle Paul puts the, the impetus in your court for you to be spiritually energized. Do you realize that? And so, Yeah. So and then the second question is, and so this is Romans twelve eleven. What has God left you responsible to do to quote keep up your spiritual f- fire or fervor serving the Lord? Like if you say, you know what, I'm just I don't I don't feel very fervorous. Okay, I just I don't. There isn't a fire in me to love what Jesus loves sacrificially. Okay, fine, fine. What has God told you to do to stoke up that fire? Because because listen, building a fire and a fire burning are not the same thing. Because it's easy to say, I just don't feel like I'm on fire for God. That's fine. That's the fire burning, okay? If I was a Boy Scout, and I was, and you were like, Nick, we need a fire burning, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't do fire burning. I would do fire building. I would go get the right kind of wood, and I would build it, and I'd put it together so they could get air, oxygen, then I'd set it on fire. That work of building the fire will then produce reliably fire. Too many people say, I just don't feel anything for God right now. I don't have a passion for what he has a passion for. What could I possibly do about this? Nothing. You just feel what you feel. You can't control your feelings, right? False. False. What you dwell on, what you put in front of your eyes, what you attend to, what you think about, what you read, what you fantasize about, what you value, all of that dictates your feelings and what you're passionate about. Your behavior, what you choose, presets how you think and feel and value everything in your life. And so if you read the Bible and you think about what the Bible teaches, there are many ways in which God tells us how to take control of our emotions, right? And we need to figure that out. So my hope is is that you'll take this this home and you'll go through devotion, then doctrine, then action or duty, and you'll revisit the passage we talked about, and i've added two major questions. One is basically like a where are you at question and the second is basically a what are you going to do about it question. Does that make sense? It would be it might be worthwhile to use this in your small group. Maybe you're a small group leader or maybe you're just in a small group. It might be worthwhile to take your small group through this. Talk about this in terms of I mean, as you're getting towards prayer, what should you pray about? What would Jesus prayer for you be? Part of that prayer is supposed to be how you can pray to be part of something bigger like the family of High Point Church, what does that mean? Well, it directly relates to these three things. So this is one exercise you could do with your small group, too, in one part or in three different meetings, as you get towards prayer, to to talk about what does it mean to be zealously and meaningfully part of the local church. Does that make sense? All right. Is Jill back with handouts? Do we got them? Okay, so these guys are gonna— this is supposed to be part of the original handout, but I was not clear enough with Jill that we wanted this. Can you move on there, Ashlyn, to the next thing? Okay. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, so um, that's the review content. Reviewing those three vision talks and how in doctrine, devotion, and duty, we are called, all of us, to be part of what Jesus cares about and loves, is doing, and has instituted. Does that make sense? Okay, great. And it's, okay, me telling you to go home and do this homework, giving you something to take with you, is intentional because this is necessary. Reflection and work is necessary for mastery, because the only thing that matters in terms of ministry is what you can do, right? You have to—one of the things I tell my kids, and I tell people that I'm training in ministry—remember, it doesn't matter what you're familiar with in a ministry situation. What matters is what you can call up at that moment when you need it, Anything you can't call up from within you when you need it isn't knowledge in the deepest sense. It's not usable. Does that make sense? And in ministry situations, you often can't go reference things. you gotta, you got to do something at that time. Does that make sense? All right. So tonight what we're going to talk about for just a few minutes is um, what I've called shepherding people through the second danger window. And it's specifically about how to disciple someone immediately after they've professed faith in Christ. One of the fallacies that people have when they engage in an evangelistic relationship or when they're helping somebody come to believe in Jesus is that it's a lot of work to get them to the point where they believe in Jesus. And then the person believes in Jesus, they may pray to receive Christ, they may go up to like some kind of altar call, or they may respond to a sermon. There's a lot of ways in which they could accept Jesus, and usually they're kind of excited about it when they do it, and you feel like, oh, this is so great, And then you give this big exhale. You're like, oh, finally. This is so great. It's finally happened. Okay? That is literally the opposite reaction you need to have. Okay? Ashley, can you go to the next slide? When somebody accepts Jesus, you can't really see what's happened from God's perspective. Okay? You can only deal with what you see and what you know you're supposed to believe by faith. So you're supposed to believe by faith that God responds to anyone who seeks him and that he freely gives the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks. And so you should believe, at least provisionally, that a miracle of regeneration has happened. They have come to Jesus. God has poured out his Holy Spirit and this person has the resources to be alive in Christ and to follow Christ. To be a, to be and to live out the new creation promise that has been given and declared. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, literally, you don't know for sure what's happened. The Bible is full of descriptions of people who seem to take spiritual steps that turn out to be another form of repression or self-deception. They're just using a different kind now, and it's a religious kind. So you don't really know exactly what's happened. Now you might be like, Nick, that's not a very faith-filled way to talk about this. Okay, but I'm copying Jesus, okay? In Mark 4 and in Matthew 13 is what's called the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, Um, there is a person who is sowing seed. That is, they have this bag of seed, they're grabbing a handful, and they're throwing it onto the ground to plant seeds. And he says four things happen with the seed that's sown. One is it lands actually on the road, and it can't even get in the soil at all. And the birds see it, they fly down, they eat it. It's a free meal, right? The second group, it falls on kind of a rocky place, and it grows up a little bit because there's a little bit of soil there, but it doesn't get down very deep. And as soon as the sun comes out, it's just too much heat. The taproot isn't deep enough to pull up enough moisture, and it just withers. The third falls kind of in the ditch, not quite to the field yet, and there's all kinds of— there's always weeds in there, right? And so the the grain is growing up, but the weeds, of course, grow faster. That's why you have to weed your garden, right? And so if if the stuff we plant in our garden would just grow faster, we wouldn't have to weed it, right? But it grow the, the fruitful stuff grows slower, right? And so it becomes spindly because all this stuff is choking it, and it chokes out the fruitfulness. And then the fourth one lands on the soil in the field, and it really grows up and produces a great crop, right? Now. The point of this—then the point of the story is not what I'm going to talk about. The point of the story is that in the parable of the sower, even though only 25%, only a quarter of the the four categories, actually believes and produces fruit, there is nothing wrong with the sower or the seed. That's the point. The point is, is that when you share the gospel, and few people believe or few people persevere, there is nothing wrong with Jesus. There is nothing wrong with a person bringing the gospel you and there is nothing wrong with the message. Right? The the message just interacts with sinful people in different ways and some people don't believe and some people believe and fall away, and some people believe and they they don't really reject it, but there's never any fruit produced because they have two masters. And there's some people who believe and they have one master, and they follow Jesus, and they produce incredible fruit. And that has nothing to do with you, and it has nothing to do with the word. It has everything to do with what people do with the gospel. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that these four possibilities for any individual person is fate. That's not how we're supposed to look at it. We're not supposed to say, listen, if, if I share the gospel with four people, one person won't believe, three people will— everybody knows that's not true— who, has any, is there anybody in here who 75% of the people you share the gospel with believe it? Right? Because my job is available. Okay? If you're over about 25%, my job is available. Okay? It's—I it's, mean, so, so the point is it's not— it's not proportional reality. The point is, is that different things can happen. And none of them are fate. Just because in the first category, the gospel is shared and it's snatched away doesn't mean that you can't change how you share the gospel to make your gospel presentation harder to snatch away. What you know is, is that whenever you sow the seed, Satan is going to try to snatch it away on some pretense, in some way. He's going to try to come in and make it unbelievable, unacceptable, right? So that nothing ever really happens with it. You know that. You can change what you do to make that harder for him and more possible for that person to believe. Same thing with, like, why did I write the book Substance? Why did we do all that campaign? Why do we focus so much on godliness? Because whether or not you're the third or the fourth soil is just fate? No. The reason we focus so much on godliness is because you could be either the third soil or the fourth soil. You could choose right now to have two masters. You could choose right now to let the cares of this world and your desire for other things and your other interests come up and choke out your faith. You could pick that. It's fine. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, well, the third category believed in Jesus. Doesn't mean it can't happen to you. Of course it can happen to you. The question is, now that you've had that warning, how will you use Jesus' prophecy as a self-defeating prophecy rather than a self-fulfilling prophecy? The fact that you know makes it so it cannot happen, rather than the fact that you know makes it so that you capitulate to it happening. Every Condemnation, every judgment, every negative statement of God in the Bible is always designed for people to repent, even if he doesn't invite you to repentance. Like there's many places in the Bible where God's like, I am gonna kill you. And they're like, Oh, that's bad. And the people repent. And he never said, if you repent, you'll live. He's just like, I'm gonna kill you. And they're like, We're sorry. He's like, Okay, God bless you. Come here. Like he completely forgives and restores and like there was no like the book of Jonah, right? The book of Jonah goes, like 40 days, you're all dead. You're all dead, right? And remember what Jonah says when they repent? One, he never invites them to repent and they do. Two, right? They hope that he'll forgive them. And three, Jonah says, I knew it. I knew when you told me that to tell them they were all dead without inviting them to believe that if they believed, you'd forg- I-, I knew you were hiding the fact that in your condemnation was really a self defeating prophecy inviting them to salvation. You drive me nuts right? And so the point is, like, a lot of what we've been doing at High Point for the last couple years is to try to move as many of us in our hearts to full devotion to Jesus, escaping the trap and slavery of the world so that we be, so that the fruitfulness would not be choked out of us, so we could make sure we don't become that third soil, that we are the fourth soil. Okay, the question is, so what can you do to make sure people you share the gospel with and who believe it aren't the second soil? Get them to the third, at least, so that we can work on them, right? And the first thing to recognize is this, is that when people believe the gospel, they might be the second soil. That's the first thing you have to realize. They're not out of the woods. They're not—they may be irreparably saved from God's perspective, but not from yours, not from the pastoral perspective, right? From our perspective, they could be the second soil, and it's decently likely they are. So what can you do? Well, there's a, there's, first you can recognize and you can know what they're facing. You can know that you haven't gotten over the hump and won a great victory, but you, but you actually should not be breathing a sigh of relief, but you should increase what you're doing. And part of it is just opening your eyes of what's happening. Here's, here's five things that naturally happen. One is the minute somebody accepts Jesus, there's going to be a strong spiritual counterattack. You may believe once saved, always saved. That doesn't mean Satan has to, and he certainly doesn't behave that way. He behaves like the minute somebody accepts Jesus that he is doubling the stakes that he's getting that person back. That's how he behaves. That's how Jesus talks in this passage, okay? Now John 10 is also true. You got to find a way to put them together. We'll do that another time. Okay, the second is there's a natural human reaction to flip back after a big decision. Any human decision in which you convert an enormous amount of potential into a single actual— There's a huge human response to say, fairly quickly after you do it, I think I made the wrong decision. I should go back. Right? You get engaged to somebody who, two months earlier, you'd have done anything for them to ask you to marry you. You get engaged. Like three days later, you're like, I don't know if I did the right thing. Maybe I did the wrong thing. Why? It's not because you think any different. It's because you just turned a four billion person possibility into a single person actuality that you're going to be stuck with the rest of your life, for good or ill that's terrifying when you accept Jesus you get rid of every other religious possibility every other world you, you you select one truth that you believe is the truth and you commit yourself to it entirely you get rid of every other potentiality for a Lord a god of your life and every other means of salvation to make your life worthwhile or better you Turn yourself over to Jesus entirely. It's terrifying, and it's the kind of decision that the human mind is immediately prone to say, I think I might do the wrong thing. I need to flip, flip back and go back to all my options. And re- remember, the demonic counterattack is, ne- is almost never like a floating ghost or like a demon appearing. S- Satan is always using perfectly natural, habitual human realities to turn people back to himself. He's using their stomach He's using their natural fears about what's going to happen in their lives. He's, he's using their, their, their pride and their vanity. He's using things that are perfectly natural. The second is that the perp- person is actually a baby Christian, which means they're vulnerable. They don't know how to fight spiritual warfare. They don't know what their doubts mean. They don't know how to spiritually feed themselves. So there's an increased spiritual battle in the life of somebody that is not prepared for it, right? And then fourth— there's always a panic of feeling alienation from the world, right? If you've been a worldling all your life and now you've accepted Jesus and pretty soon it dawns on you that th- you are being alienated from the majority of human society for the rest of your life. Like, there is a sense in which you will always be separated from them. And they won't approve of things that you believe. And in some situations, you're going to have to not say certain things. And in some places, you could even get fired for what you believe. And certainly, if you profess it, and all of a sudden, people people's internal instinct of security and acceptance rears its ugly head and pushes them back to two. And then number one uses that mightily. And then five, they will find change hard. Even though they thought it would be easy, right? Because when you're excited about something, like you get engaged to somebody, and you're like, you're so in love, it's going to be so easy to have a good marriage. Turns out it's not, right? It turns out there's an undulation to human experience And that, like, euphoria of Eros kind of, like, evens itself out a while in, and you're left with your character to get along in your marriage. (laughs) Right? But that's what happens to a new believer, right? There's this impassioned undulation of love for Jesus. What's just happening? This is so amazing. It's going to be so easy to stop fornicating. And then two months in, it finds out it's not at all. You're terrified of being alone. You want comfort. You don't know how to find comfort in Jesus. You're like, all these things are pushing in on you, and like, you don't know what to do. All of a sudden, you find out that Christianity that you thought was going to be easy is actually really hard. And who wants hard? Right? Okay, so let's go to the next one. So one of the things that, that Jesus says is the main danger this time is trouble or persecution. Some, and so one of the things I tell people, sometimes I tell people, I say, listen, You've just believed in Jesus. I'll tell us if—I've had people pray to receive Jesus in my office. Before they leave my office, there's a number of things I tell them, and it always includes these three things. One, you're not yet rooted. Don't think yourself secure. And I mean that from a psychological perspective, not a spiritual perspective. From a spiritual perspective, if they're converted, they're converted, they're fully accepted by God. He's chosen them for himself. For all that I know, they're the elect and nothing else could ever happen. But that's not my perspective. That is in the hidden secret knowledge of God. I don't know that yet. We'll know that in heaven. When they persevere and we go, we cross the pearly gates and we go in, we pass the front-facing sign of heaven that says, whoever will may come, and we go in and we look back and it says, predestined from the foundation of the world, then we will know we were elect. We, we don't know any such thing right now. Right now, what we know is we must set ourselves to persevere and therefore to grow and therefore to be rooted and therefore ready to face trouble and persecution. So one of the first things I tell people is one of the attacks that you're going to receive is that you're probably going to run into some kind of trouble in your life. Something in your life is going to flare up. And two, you're probably going to face some kind of disapproval pretty early on from somebody, that's going to make you feel alienated. And both of those are going to be profound temptations for you to go back on what you've just decided and put your trust in. And what you need to do right now is to spend time and energy in close relationships with other believers to root yourself. And sometimes I will go to Matthew 13 or Mark 4, right after somebody's accepted Jesus, and I will read the passage with them. And I will say, which one of these soils do you want to be? You're not one— but you could still be two or three or four. Which one do you want to be? Number four. Great. What do you think it's going to take to get there? You got to not be two. What What do we have to do in the next month for you to not be number two? Right? I'll have that conversation with them right then. Okay, let's go on to the next thing. Let's keep going. I already did that. Keep going. Sorry. It's hard when I don't have the clicker. She's doing a great job. Okay. So, here are a few things—I want to go over five things about shepherding people through this thing I call the second nature. The first is, preach the whole gospel before they believe, okay? Um, it's very tempting for us to only share what we think people find the most plausible about the gospel before they're a Christian, right? Now, that may be—for a lot of us, that'll be in a secular city like Madison. We don't want to talk about angels or demons, right? Because that, that'll make us look very unsophisticated. And it'll also bring up in people's minds very unbiblical ideas of angels and demons, which will lead them plausibly against the Christian faith. For some people, we don't want to talk about the Christian sexual ethic, either to please their flesh, saying that they can fornic- insinuating that they can still fornicate all they want, or to not deal with LGBT stuff. We don't want to talk about that the, the Bible has stuff to say about that, that they won't like. Right? Sometimes we'll hold that back. Here's the problem. You, will, you always keep people with what you win them with. It's true in churches. It's why we don't do some big show on Easter, Right? Because if people come on Easter, we do some big, like, hoopla with, like, white stallions and me swinging in full plate mail. Like, that's, that's cool and everything, but, like, the next Sunday when they come, it's not going to be like that. We can't do that every week, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, li- it's, it's like spending a ton of money on a woman to get her to get engaged with you. What do you think is going to happen after she marries you? And you become precipitously less financially romantic. Right? You keep people with whatever you win them with. And how you talk about the gospel before they believe is how you're going to be able to talk about the gospel after they believe. Better they don't believe yet than that they come on false terms and think you a liar in bringing them to the truth, and so inoculate them and vaccinate them against fully believing later. We have to tell them the truth. Not not everything about the gospel— but if you hold things back, you've got to be really careful about how and why, and for how long. Because otherwise, you can't actually get them rooted, because there's still stuff you feel like you have to hold back even after they've believed. Right? Next one. The second is, warn them of the difficulties they will immediately face. Go to the next slide, would you, Ashley? So I, I usually warn people of these six. One, um, they may fear that they made the wrong decision. You're going to have this feeling. It's natural for human beings every time you make a big decision to have this fear. You're going to have this fear. Just—it's realized it's natural. It's fine. Okay? That will keep them from freaking out, hopefully. Okay? Secondly, um, you'll have some thoughts over the next couple of days that will personally attack me, the person who led you to Jesus. You'll—you will probably have some discrediting thoughts towards me. Um, And I just want you to know that that's perfectly normal. That's what normally happens. It could be your mind just trying to talk you yourself out of a difficult decision that's narrowed down your possibilities and part of one way to do that is to discredit me. It could also be a spiritual attack that somebody who's tried to be faithful and love you and tell you the truth to attack me, but you may have discrediting t- thoughts towards me and it's it's something that's perfectly normal it happens a lot. You should know that that might happen Third is um, some emergency something in your life is going to flare up there's some some trouble is gonna hit you right look right here in Matthew 13, you see how it says when trouble or hardship? It makes sense that you get hit with trouble early on before you're rooted, right? Fourth is, is that you're going to find something in Christian faith hard, if not everything. And that's going to be a, a testing point fairly early. Be ready for that, because it's going to be hard, but it's going to be so worth it, and I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. Five, not everybody's going to be excited about your new faith. Okay, listen. Your mom might not be excited, your roommate, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your whatever, whoever, your professor, your doctoral dissertation supervisor, they may not be excited about this. You may want to be careful with who you share it with. You, you also should be open about who you are. But you have to figure it out. But you need, you need to realize not everybody's going to be happy with you. That's, that is less true now. Things have changed politically and secularly such that most people know that when they believe now, especially in a place like Madison. They know this is going to uh, cost them. So that's good, at least, sort of. Okay. And then six, they're going to experience something that we call spiritual warfare, and I'm really open with them about that, usually. Um, and I sometimes I'll use more secular language about spiritual warfare, but I will still be talking in a way that they understand what I'm talking about. But I may avoid language that a secular person will associate with a caricature of angels and demons or spiritual realities. Does that make sense? but I will still be talking about those spiritual realities in language that they can understand. Like, sometimes I will say, listen, the Bible talks about personal intelligences. Our colloquial language for that is angels and demons. I don't want to use that language because it's going to conjure up pitchforks and wings and stuff like that and weird art stuff you've seen on the internet, okay? But all it means is is that there are are other beings that want to glorify God and use his creation for what it's for, and they're on our side. And there are other intelligences that are not. And we are what's in play that can most hurt and destroy what God is trying to do. And they are going to try to interrupt this thing that you've done, right? So I, some of that might sound unfaithful. Hopefully you see that, like, I'm really—I'm just contextualizing the language, trying to—trying to undo language and assumptions and associations that they'll make. They'll draw them away, right? And—but yet still warn them about the spiritual warfare they're gonna face. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to the next slide. The third is, this is time for your most frequent personal contact. So if you've been meeting with a person like every day, and then like you sitting in a coffee shop and they accept Jesus, or you're sitting in your car in a rainstorm and they accept Jesus, right? Great. This is not the time to say, I'll see you on Sunday. Um, my rule is a 24-hour rule. I want to see this person face to face in the next 24 hours. If not, I definitely want to talk to them on the phone and encourage them that they've made the right decision What they had done was the right thing. This is great. Right? And I'll ask them how they're doing. Um, The Billy Graham Association, um, Mike said, has a three-day rule. My thing is if you try to meet meet with them within 24 hours, practically you'll at least meet with them within three days. Right? But you don't want to—you don't want to leave a spiritual baby out there by themselves for multiple days to engage in spiritual warfare without any aid. You want to get in there, and you want to help them get rooted, okay? And so that's one of the rules. Okay, go to the next one. Fourth is, go over key doctrines and practices very early on. There's a booklet that Mike has that um, has has these in it. Salvation. What happened to you? What is salvation? Two, what are the basic practices of the Christian life? Three, what, how can you know that you're saved? And find some assurance in that. Third is, this is a holistic— like, you have to give your life totally to Jesus. This isn't like a— on Sundays, or Jesus just dealt with your sin problem. This is a whole life that you become his disciple, right? That, that decision of full surrender is absolutely critical. If they don't do it, they will have two masters, and they will become soil three. You have to face that the earlier the better. Fourth is um, just reading the Bible. Usually best if you do that with them. Prayer, usually best if you do that with them. What the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means and keeping in step with the Spirit means that they should want to share their faith with others if they really believe it saved them. And last, that you belong to a new family, and that means belonging to a local church. Um, And so, like, in introducing them to those early on is really important because it helps them understand what they're doing, how they're engaging in warfare, how they can get rooted, right? Go to the next one, would you? And then last is um, do devotions together and ride to church together. I think there might be one more after this. So— Literally say, hey, let's get together and read the Bible, and like you'll find how easy it is to get spiritual nourishment out of the Bible and to grow closer to God. And then don't read Leviticus, right? Like read John, um, or John, or you could read John. Or, um, there's a lot of epistles you could do too, but like there's actually on the website, there's a list, there's a Bible reading blog that lists the first 15 books I recommend anybody read in the Bible, and you can use that if you like. Um, And then I would say, hey, I'm going to pick you up for church on Sunday morning at 8.45. And then you call the person you volunteer with, and you tell them you can't serve for the next four weeks. And then every Sunday, you go pick up that person, and you ride with them to church, and hopefully then you ride with them to lunch after, and you talk about what they heard and what God taught them. Does that make sense? All right. Go on the next one. I think there's one more. Right? And then six is get them into the right relationships. So that's small groups, local church. But it's also just, who are other Christians you know that have similar temperaments to them, similar interests to them? Every relationship of a a godly person you tie them into is another person they've locked arms with in the spiritual war for their perseverance. And so you want them to know as many people that they would like and grow close to as you possibly can. And in addition to that, you also want them to find a mentor if that mentor can't be you. I'm in the position as a pastor that I meet a lot of people who are like 75% of the way there. And so I like lead them over the finish line, but then I can't disciple them for two years, right? And a lot of times that these people are women, and I'm not going to disciple them. And so I want to hand them off to somebody, and so I'm going to look for a mentor for them. So fairly recently, um, I was with this young woman. She prayed to receive Christ, and— I sat down with Alexi. We talked with her for a little bit, and we thought of two women who— one of them had a lot of similar experiences to her— a lot of same hurts and pains and stuff like that— and then another woman who had a very similar temperament to her. And so we introduced her to both of those women. One is—one is mentoring her, and the other one is now her friend. Just because you found the person one mentor doesn't mean you don't help engage them to find more Christian friendships. Because the more people in their life to tie them in, to hold them into the family, to be brother and sister with them, the stronger their ties to the family of God. And through those relationships, God could use any of those relationships to do all kinds of different things. And they're very likely not going to get all that they spiritually need from just one. So focus on tying them into the right relationships. If you do these things, some people who accept Jesus will still prove to be soil number two. And there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with the seed of the gospel. Some people will be soil number twos. But there will be some people that without your obedience, without the craft of ministry that you've learned, without you loving the things that Jesus loved, that without you being on the mission Jesus sent you on, but for that they would have been soil number two, but in God's providence, you could even say in his election, based on Ephesians 2.10, that you are God's workmanship. He is working you right now. Right now, as you listen to this talk, he is shaping you in his own handiwork to be shaped to be the kind of person that he can predestine you for a work you are going to do to make sure somebody who accepts Jesus does not become soil number two, but becomes soil number four. Right now, you're being shaped for it. Right now—and right now, God has already planned the good work you're going to do in the future because he's shaping you for it right now. You are going to master this, and you're going to bump into somebody maybe sooner rather than later, who's going to accept Jesus and you are going to do this stuff. And for some of you, they will still prove to be number twos. You still did the good work God prepared beforehand for you to do and that he worked you in his workmanship to make you. He is 100% pleased with you. And some of you will see that person flourish, be tied in, and become that number four soil that produces an enormous, fruitful soil. Um, harvest for the kingdom of God that you could not have imagined. So take this home with you. Please study it. Please master it. Please be ready for that moment when this happens because if you do these things, it can make an enormous difference for the sheep that Jesus loves. Okay, let's pray, then we'll split up. God, thanks for this time we've had together. I pray that you'd use this. I hope that people found this very practical and helpful and useful. I pray that there'd be people that don't know you now at all, that are extremely far from you, that things will happen and they will hear the gospel and they will come to you and they will be in one of our lives and we will do these things and they will be found faithful. They will persevere. They will, provi- they will live a life that produces much fruit. And we pray that you'd use each of us to do this many times in our lives. Use us to shepherd your sheep. Please help us to feed and protect them. Help us to root them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equipment.